With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Pax Britannica. The Scottish Revolution interview series, The Covenanters in Restoration Scotland, with Dr. Alan Kennedy. Welcome to the Pax Britannica Scottish Revolution interview series. Today I'm thrilled to speak with Dr. Alan Kennedy, lecturer in history at the University of Dundee, project manager of the Scottish Privy Council Project, and consultant editor of History Scotland. Dr. Kennedy's research focuses on the social and political history of early modern Scotland, with a particular focus on the latter half of the 17th century. Much of his work has been on Restoration Scotland, between the return of Charles II and the overthrow of his brother, James II, and I'm happy to speak with him today. Dr. Alan Kennedy, thank you so much for joining me this morning. No problem. Thanks very much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Most of the people I've spoken to in the interview series, they're specialists of the the period of the Scottish Revolution, or at least the earlier Scottish Revolution. But your period is later in the century. I'd love to pick your brains about the legacy of these events further down the line. When, Because, you know, Scottish history isn't all calm and placid. After 1660, lots more stuff happens, and I have to wonder whether the legacy, the heritage, the the memory, popular memory even, of the revolution had a role to play in that. So the restoration occurs in 1660. In the immediate aftermath, some members of the of the covenant leadership are executed. You mainly, I'm thinking like Argyle. How far? How did the restoration regime handle ordinary Scots when Charles II returned? And what about were, were covenanters suppressed? I suppose that depends on your time scale. I mean, the, um, the the initial impulse of the Restoration regime, Charles II's regime, when it uh, when it comes back in 1660, is to to make examples of some of these covenanting leaders. You mentioned Argyle, Archibald Johnson of Warriston is another one who, by the time he's executed, is, is a very old and, and frail man, but that, that doesn't save him. Um, so th- there's that element of it um, of punishing the more prominent individuals. As for ordinary Scots, however, um, Charles II's government makes initially very little effort to 
to impose punishments on them for one very good reason, I think, which is that if Charles II had decided to execute everybody who had uh, cleaved to the covenant, who had fought for the covenant in the 1640s and, and into the 1650s, he would have had nobody left in Scotland. Virtually everybody had been a covenanter to some degree. So, you know, reality dictates that Charles II has to um, uh, allow an, uh, an indemnity uh, to pass. However, as I say, he doesn't uh, quite go the whole hog of just uh, forgiving and forgetting everything. When the act of, of indemnity is passed by the Charles II's first Scottish Parliament, um, there are a few absolute exceptions. So people like Argyle Warriston, the, the ones I mentioned earlier who get executed. There's also a very, very long list of um, slightly less prominent people who will be granted indemnity, but are required to pay a fine beforehand. Um, and there's a, a suspicion at the time, and I think it's a very justified suspicion, that, that Charles II is using this. And um, I say Charles II, I really mean his ministers in Scotland, particularly particularly the Earl of Middleton, um, are using this to extract revenue, essentially. It's not really about in, indemnity. It's a bit of a wheeze uh, to, uh, to force people to pay up and, and uh, swell the Crown's coffers a little bit. Um, so I think that's the, the 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 basic approach that Charles II takes. For most ordinary folk, it's just uh, well, let's let's forget about it and move on. Um, for the very prominent covenanting leaders, particularly ones whom Charles II himself had had a very difficult relationship with in his first reign in the early 1650s. Argyle is the best example of that. Um, I wouldn't blame Charles II if he loathed Argyle with a passion, given given how um, how domineering Argyle's behaviour towards him had been in 1650 to 1. Um, and then in the middle, there's this group of gentry who, who, who get fines imposed on them, um, some of which were probably paid, some of which likely were not. Um, so we have this this kind of threefold approach to indemnity that Charles II takes, and that's worked itself out by around about the middle of the 1660s. Um, and that process of um, of punishing is... is um, is finished by that point, I think. Presumably, by that point, everyone's fine and dandy, and there's no <laughs> problems whatsoever. That's not the case. I wonder if you could you could expand a little bit more on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it would be lovely if everything had been wonderful <laughs> and peaceful. Um, but it's not. I mean, the main the, the, there are lots of little little problems um, that, that are likely to come around when you've got a massive political and and um, political revolution, which has wider ramifications like the Restoration. So there are individuals who don't feel like they're properly rewarded. Um, uh, MacDonald Glengarry, for example, wants to be made an Earl. He wants to become Earl of Ross. He thinks that his activities on behalf of Charles II in the, the Glencairns Rising in the mid-1650s merit something like that. He doesn't get it and he's a little bit annoyed. So th there's lots of that. Um, and there are other sort of niggling problems as well. The big issue, of, of course, though, and I think this is what you're referring to, is that um, by 1662, um, the, the restoration is going so well for the government, it's managing to, to, uh, to, to restore royal authority uh, so fully that it decides to go the whole hog um, and reintroduce episcopacy, Episcopalianism as the, the form of the Church of Scotland. Um, now, the reason that's, uh, uh, well, the reason that's a problem I'll come on to in a moment, but I think it's, it's worth establishing, first of all, that it's a little bit of a surprise because most people, when Charles II returns in 1660, and this probably includes Charles II himself, had likely assumed that they would have to retain some degree of, of Presbyterianism, that, that, that completely restoring episcopacy was probably not possible. Um, and a lot of more moderate Presbyterians um, 
convince themselves that Charles has no intention of, of doing this, of restoring Episcopacy. And as I say, Charles probably had been cautious about what he could achieve. But particularly under the guidance of Middleton, who is his commissioner to the Scottish Parliament between 60, in 1661 and 1662, um, we get this full restoration of diocesan episcopacy. So, so bishops come back um, and are charged with running the church just as they had been before the Covenanting Revolution. And obviously, for a lot of people who had become um, big supporters of a Presbyterian ecclesiastical system as it had developed after 1638, um, this is unacceptable. Um, and that's why we see um, a very large exodus of people from the Church of Scotland, particularly ministers, um, who are required as part of this church settlement to, um, to demonstrate their willingness to accept an Episcopalian system. Those that are not willing to do that probably amounts to about a third of the ministers in the church um, who, who are in that position of not being willing to, to make, the, make those declarations, they are forced out of the church um, and out of their, their livings. Um, and that obviously is a big problem at the time. It causes a lot of, of upheaval, a lot of tension, but it also underpins virtually the entirety of the rest of the restoration. We can think of the restoration Charles II's reign up to 1685 and then James VII's um, at least up to 1687 and, and actually towards the end of his, right to the end of his reign as well. We can think of that whole period as um, an extended exercise in trying to work out the, the implications of that restoration of episcopacy. Um, but the, there is no doubt that at the time um, of, of, it, of it passing in 1662, already it's very clear that this is a major upheaval. Um, and it has significant implications, um, which will dominate Charles's reign um, uh, for for as long as he remains king. Are you referring to the so-called killing times? Eventually, um, we, the, the killing times. Um, this wonderful phrase that's that's kind of invented by by Presbyterian propagandists, um, really in, in the 18th century, um, looking back on Charles II's reign. The killing times are are, are in some ways the, the culmination of this process, and they, they really. Um, are, are concentrated um, in the in the half decade after 1679, so the, the last few years of mm. Charles II's reign in particular, and arguably the first couple of, of James VII's. But it takes us a long time to get to the killing time. What we have instead um, for throughout the 1660s and 1670s um, is a process of what um, what's sometimes called oscillation on the government's part between repress repression and conciliation. Mm -hmm. um, and what that means is they... they, they they, or, or it has been suggested that we can think of Charles II's government in particular as swinging between trying to tempt these ministers back into the church, um, trying to, to get them to take up their, their livings again and, and preach within the, the structures of the Church of Scotland again, uh, under conditions that they're, you know, they're, not, they're not allowed to utter treasonous um, uh, words, for example, you know, stuff, stuff like that. Um, that in particular is, is um, uh, we, we see happening in the, the so-called indulgences, the first in 1669, which tries to bring some of these ministers back, a second one in 1672, which, which uh, tries to bring a few more. There's a third one in 1679, which we might come to a bit later because it's, it's slightly separate. Um, but as well as that, as well as trying to, um, to tempt these ministers back into the church, the, the repression element that I mentioned involves the government trying to clamp down on what it sees as militant Presbyterian nonconformity. And that usually takes the form of holding illegal prayer meetings, either in, in private households, so you'll get a, a, 
a Presbyterian inclined individual will hold a prayer meeting, invite, invite one of these ministers, perhaps, who was ejected from the church to come and preach um, uh, as, a, as a Presbyterian um, in his household and other people might come along. That, that would be a house conventicle. Or, and this is the bit that the government's really worried about, the so-called field conventicles. And this is where you do the same thing, but outdoors. So you'll get a, um, a, a minister, um, an ejected minister to come along and preach outdoors. And the problem with these field conventicles is they can get really big. You can get lots of people coming and listening to these exiled, to these, um, these ejected ministers. And the government sees this as a challenge to its authority, because obviously these are people who are, who are, we're operating outside the, the monolithic, what's supposed to be the monolithic Church of Scotland structures. It also sees this as a fundamental problem of law and order, because these um, field conventicles, the government um, tends to see them as disorderly, tends to see them as breeding sedition, tends to see them as being likely to lead to rebellion. And so the natural response on the part of Charles II's government um, is to try and repress them, to, to um, break up these conventicles as they happen, um, to try and use uh, force or, um, or, or um, harsh legislation to ensure that these things never take place in, in, in the first place. Um, and over the 1660s and 1670s, we see the government gradually, I think, getting um, less and less patient with these um, with these conventicles and getting harsher and harsher um, in, in repression. And most notoriously, the so-called Clanking Act of 1670, um, which threatens death to any minister um, who is caught preaching to one of these field conventicles. This is, this is one of the, 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 the uh, examples that's held up as the government um, really doubling down on a repressive approach to these religious nonconformists. Um, but it only gets really bad um, um, gets into the killing time after the Covenanter Rebellion of 1679, um, which gives the government a tremendous shock. It's actually not a gigantic rebellion and it's put down fairly quickly, um, but nonetheless, it, um, it, it gives, in, in, a, in a wider context of, of lots of things going wrong around about 1678 to nine across Charles II's kingdoms, um, it causes all sorts of, 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 of fear. Um, and then in the 1680s, the government begins getting even more repressive um, towards towards Covenanters. Um, the Covenanters respond in various ways, which we might get into later on. Um, but it's that period that's the, that, that comes to be known as the killing time, because it involves things like summary executions, like um, um, lots, not lots of people, but, but some Presbyterians being, being killed um, while field conventicles are being scattered. All these kind of things mean that the 1680s looks even more repressive than the previous 20 odd years, which is why I think it tends to be zoned in on by these, these um, Presbyterian historians writing after 1700 as the, the period of peak repression. Um, so as I say, it's, it's, it's the most intense phase, but in some ways can also be thought of as the culmination of, of a process that had been going on really since the moment that Charles II's government decided to restore episcopacy in 1662. I think that makes a lot of sense. It's hard to see a government going from not to 60, from not being peaceful to 60 being summary executions during <laughs> uh, a crackdown. So yeah, it makes a lot of sense that this is, a, like you say, a culmination and uh, the government slowly getting less and less patient with it. So you mentioned that the, the Covenant has responded to these things. I wonder if you could talk a bit more about that. There's a couple of things to say there. The first is that in, in the early phase of Charles II's reign, while this process of repression is is is, is gaining ground, um, 
we see a particular intensification of that in, in the, the sort of towards the mid 1660s in the context of, of war with the Dutch and all sorts of, of, of other issues going on across Charles II's kingdoms. Um, the government um, sort of cracks down a little bit more around about 1665 to six and that sparks a rebellion, the so-called Pentland Rising. Um, Starting in the south, the southwest, and and we end up with a sort of small band of of um, of covenanting rebels, um, sort of marching up towards Edinburgh, where they're defeated um, in 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 a in a battle by the by the government um, in, in the Pentland Hills. Hence, hence the name Pentland Rising. Um, not a particularly big rising, but it's a nice example of the way that um, there is a tendency to sort of push back um, when the government's getting too too repressive. Um, that happens again in the, the late 1670s. Um, again, we've had a period of um, increasing stringency on the part of the government from the mid 1670s onwards, um, particularly exemplified by the so-called Highland Host. This is uh, an attempt by the Duke of Lauderdale, who is Charles II's chief minister in Scotland um, for much of his reign. Uh, he, he gathers a militia of about 8,000 men um, some of them from the Highlands, hence the name Highland Host, although it's largely the, the Highland Fringe, the southern fringe of the Highlands, but also militia units from elsewhere in Scotland. And this force is sent down to the southwest of Scotland at the start of 1678 um, to, to extract free quarter. Basically, it's, it's there to try and force people, uh, Covenanters in the southwest Scotland, to be peaceable and to stop attending field conventicles and, and to start behaving themselves as the government sees it. Um, it doesn't work. No great, no great shock. These kind of approaches often, often don't. Um, so what we get instead, um, partly in response to, to the Highland Host, but also just as a more general response to government policy, is an increasing radicalisation of some of the more hardline Covenanters, um, beginning to harden their rhetoric. Um, the most famous example of, of this is the so-called Cameronians, a small group of radical Covenanters around. Richard Cameron is, is, is their leader, um, who begins saying things like, Charles II is a tyrant, he's no true king, we're at war with him, fairly, fairly radical language. Um, and that, that, that fringe of radical covenanters becomes uh, noisier and better organised as we get into the 1680s. Um, and it's, it's partly this, this radical fringe, but, but also a, a repeat of the dynamic we saw around about the Pentland Rising of just repression causing a spring back, that we get another Covenanter Rebellion in 1679. And that's sparked off by the assassination of the Archbishop of St Andrews in May 1679, which is in many ways a, a, a coincidence. The, the, the assassins, the people who murdered um, James Sharp, the Archbishop, um, had, had sort of not been intending to to murder him but they happened to come across him as he was traveling um near st andrews in his coach and dragged him from it stabbed him to death as um, you do as you do indeed <laughs> and, that, and that sparks off another covenanter rebellion um as, as i mentioned earlier uh, earlier on in 1679 which is not particularly um uh, extensive nor does it last very long it only lasts about a month before it is um it is 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 put down by government forces. Um, but the government interprets this as evidence of increasing radicalization and increasing um, sedition on the part of these hardline covenanters and begins this process of imposing the killing time. The covenanters then respond by, or, or this, this fringe of covenanters, uh, because actually I think most Presbyterians by the time we get into the 1680s have more or less made their sort of grudging peace with, with, the, the, with Charles II's regime, but this core, um, actually core is entirely the wrong word, this fringe of hardline covenanters, um, 
has not, and is getting more and more radical, is getting more and more um, vociferous in its in its um, in its rhetoric. Um, ultimately, leading to what's called the United Societies, this kind of umbrella group of uh, of radical covenanters um, who persist throughout the throughout the sixteen eighties up until the reign of, of James the Seventh. Um, but I think it's important to, to underline, as, as I hinted at a moment ago, that while we're seeing this process of radicalization, of doing things like declaring war on Charles II, of, of um, declaring him a tyrant, all that stuff, this fringe um, is getting more radical, but also, I think, smaller and tighter. Um, so we have this process of, um, of radicalization, which is also hiving off the more extreme covenanters from mainstream dissenting Presbyterians, which is one of the reasons I think we see many of these mainstream Presbyterians uh, grudgingly coming on, uh, sort of coming over to accept the, the church settlement after the rebellion of 1679. And I think it's clear to these people that that, they, that they're not going to change the church settlement. Um, and anyway, they don't want to be associated with these radical covenanters who, in their view, and in Charles II's view, and, and most people's views, I suspect, are saying pretty radical borderline crazy things by the time we get to the 1680s. Um, so it's a, it's a very, very complicated and fragmented response we have behalf on the on, on the part of the Presbyterian, um, Presbyterian groupings, which I think is constantly shot through with this division between some Presbyterians willing to make an accommodation with Charles II and some absolutely being unwilling to do so. And, and that label covenanter increasingly, I think, becomes associated with those radical groups, um, which might explain why when we get to the revolution, which we, we may come to later, um, covenanting does not come back, um, even as Presbyterianism, Presbyterianism does as the official religion of Scotland. So you, you've already mentioned that the, uh, Charles II brings back the bishops. You mentioned the Earl of Middleton and his role as commissioner. Did Charles try and turn the clock back to the pre-revolutionary system or did he at least try and keep some of the covenantal reforms, at least the ones that were proven useful? Yeah, um, uh, I mean, it's, it's one of those classic responses of yes and no, <laughs> because <laughs> it, the, 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 rest, the restoration settlement, as it's worked out by about 1663, is really interesting, because on paper and in, in rhetoric and in ethos, it's fundamentally conservative. It's about let's go back to what was happening before 1637-38. So um, when Parliament is, is re-established, um, it's re-established along the lines of the of Charles I's Parliament rather than the Covenanting Parliament. So that means things like having the so-called Lords of the Articles mm -hmm. back. And that's it, it's a draft, that's a drafting committee which had under Charles I and his predecessors had been responsible for drafting legislation and then presenting it to the Scottish Parliament just to vote on on, on mass. Um, that had been done away with by the Covenanters. It's brought back by Charles II. And I think that's a nice signal of the way that his government is intending to model itself on Charles I's government, not the Covenanters, and also a signal of, of its desire for control. Because the whole point of the Lords of the Articles is it's a really powerful tool for controlling what goes on in Parliament. Um, and in all sorts of other ways, um, Charles II's government is 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 trying to show itself to be a, a, a conservative regime. So it does things like it restores um, the uh, the patchwork of legal jurisdictions that had existed under Charles I, which had, and, and actually persisted into the Covenanting period as well. But it's a chaotic jumble of legal jurisdictions that makes no sense at all. Um, is nonetheless restored wholesale to to the way it had been before the revolution. Um, uh, 
procedurally as well, Parliament goes back to the way it had been before, not just the Lords of the Articles, but in all sorts of other ways. Um, we have um, the same thing going on in, 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 um, in terms of civil law. So the Court of Session comes back. It had been done away with by, um, by, by Cromwell um, and so on and so on. So it looks like Charles II's government is going right back to the way it had been uh, before. And indeed, um, we end up getting that um, underlined by the so-called Act Recissory, which is passed in 1662 by the Scottish Parliament, which just wholesale annuls every Act of Parliament that's been passed in Scotland since 1633. So basically everything that had happened mm. um, in the previous 30 odd years, um, although Parliament hadn't existed in the 1650s, but nonetheless, um, was, was, all that was just gone. We are back to the early reign of Charles I. So that looks really conservative. And with that comes things like the restoration of, of the, the nobility to a position of, of clear preeminence in politics, which arguably had been challenged during the 1630s and, and 40s. Um, so all of Charles II's major ministers are noblemen, um, people like the Earl of Middleton, people like the Duke of Lauderdale, the Earl of Tweeddale, um, the, the, Duke, the Earl of Leiter, Duke of Rothes, all of these people who dominate his, his government um, are, are noblemen. A couple of exceptions later on, but we'll sort of complicate things. <laughs> so all that looks really conservative. However, I think it is really important to, to acknowledge that in some ways, the government sort of quietly accepts that some things that the Covenanters had done were actually better. Um, the most obvious example of that is is tax. Yeah. Um, because one of the, the things that had really annoyed Charles I, James VI, nearly any Scottish monarch before that, was the the inadequacy of the revenue that they they, uh, they got from Scotland through through taxation especially. Um, so Charles II's regime kind of quietly retains a lot of the, the 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 tax innovations that the Covenanters had brought in, particularly by retaining the two main taxes the Covenanters had had had, uh, had brought in, the, um, the so-called excise tax, so an excise on, on foreign imports, which Charles II's par first parliament um, grants to him uh, for the rest of his life, just in perpetuity, that you, you will always have the excise tax. So immediately giving him um, a permanent tax income that hadn't accrued to previous monarchs. And then later in the 1660s, after grubbing around a little bit to try and find if there was other ways to raise revenue, Charles II's uh, regime then reintroduces uh, the, the so-called assessment, so a land tax that had been pioneered by the Covenanters around about 1645, um, which is just brought back in and becomes the basis for for, for most public taxation um, throughout Charles II's reign. And equally importantly, that taxation becomes de facto permanent. Previously, under, under previous Stuart Kings, the assumption had been that monarchs only taxed for short periods of time for particular purposes. So if they're going to war or something like that, or if they're gonna pay for a wedding or whatever, you could impose a tax for a brief period of time. Under Charles II, that rhetoric of, of taxation is, is temporary persists but in reality once one temporary tax has expired a new temporary tax um, hmm. is immediately imposed and these these are for periods of about five years at a time or, or what have you so effectively we have permanent taxation um which had been a covenanting innovation and and it's quietly accepted by charles ii's government um so that's a nice example of the way that we have a restoration settlement which is um which looks conservative but which is when it is convenient, and when I say convenient, I mean convenient for the crown, is retaining some of the innovations of the, the covenanting period. The other way 
in which Charles II's government is actually quite radical rather than conservative, and it's radical again in the, in the direction of retaining what the Covenanters had done, is in its military capacity. Uh, because previous Stuart kings had had virtually no military capacity from of their own from Scotland. Charles II does. He has a standing army. So he's, he's the first Scottish monarch to have a peacetime standing army, and it will persist throughout his reign. It's not very big, about 3,000 men at, at, at its peak later in the reign, um, but it's there. So that is an innovation, and that again is inspired by the militarism of the covenanting regime. Uh, even more importantly, though, the government re um, creates a militia, uh, which uh, a sort of just, just as you would expect, a citizen militia, so ordinary folk can be called up uh, to serve in this militia, which theoretically could be up to 20,000 strong, so a fairly substantial force. Um, and this militia is, uh, or bits of it, it it's, I don't think it's ever um, mustered in its entirety at any one time, um, but bits of, of the odd militia unit or, 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 um, or, or what have you, is used very heavily by Charles II's government to do things like ensure the collection of taxes, to do things like um, uh, scatter field, field conventicles, basically any uh, tax raising and law and order uh, aims that the government has, it, it, it can use the militia to, to further those, those aims. And that again looks much more like the covenanting state than it looks like the, the antebellum Stuart state. So that's another way in which I think we have a government which is um, which is presenting itself as a reincarnation of what had happened under Charles I and James VI, but which in reality is, is tweaking things, retaining things uh, when it thinks that is useful, um, largely in the direction of expanding the government's uh, authority and expanding the government's coercive capacity. So it's a nice mixture of conservatism and radicalism. I think that is the best way of understanding um, the settlement that, that is produced in Scotland by the mid-1660s. A lot of what you mentioned would definitely be considered the stick of mm. the thing. Was, did, did Charles offer a carrot to his Scottish subjects? Um, well, I mean, he offers a carrot to, to some. Mm -hmm. um, so um, those who, who he perceives as having um, uh, done him a good turn, so we're talking largely elites here, will be rewarded. So um, he'll dole out titles, he'll dole out money payments um he'll do like offices to um to individuals um who he thinks have, have done him well for the populace as, as a whole i think that the carrot if it is one um or at least the the offer that charles ii gives is first of all restoration of any rights and privileges you might have enjoyed before the covenanting revolution so um the, the the royal boroughs, for example, are restored restored to all the privileges they'd had beforehand. This re restoration of, of jurisdictions is also part of that because a lot of these jurisdictions were in private hands, the so-called heritable jurisdictions that, that landlords have uh, just by virtue of being landholders. It's part of their charters. They will have a right to, to hold a court which can uh, punish certain crimes. Um, so again, that's part of... of um, of the carrot, it's offering you the restoration of rights that you, you may have lost, um, certainly in the 1650s, but possibly in the 1640s as well. For the population more generally, though, I think the carrot is, is an offer of just order. Um, I think what Charles II is saying um, is that what my government offers you is uh, a sort of strong government, and, and that's one of the um, uh, one of the, the points that, that people discuss a lot is how how 
powerful, how, how strong do we need government to be? But the reason that that discussion is going on is because people don't want to return to the chaos of the 1640s and 1650s. People just, um, I think quite understandably, after 20 years of upheaval, um, would like a bit of, of peace and quiet. So what Charles II is offering by way of carrot, I suppose, is that nebulous sense of, um, of order, of no more chaos, of um, my government will just uh, keep things ticking over quietly and let us get back to something that looks like normalcy essentially. Um, and so I think if we're talking about a carrot outside of the elites who have all sorts of goodies thrown at them, as I've mentioned, um, for most people, that is the essential carrot is just get on with your lives um, without all the, without these, um, these bullying ministers from the 1640s telling you what to do, without these um, English soldiers from the 1650s extracting lots of your money and then building a citadel down the road. Um, I think it's just, we, we will give you peace, order, and quiet and that is in some ways the, the, the core raison d'etre of Charles II's regime throughout his reign up until 1685 um, is I'll give you order, I'll give you security, I'll give you peace. Now whether, whether that's actually what is delivered is an entirely different <laughs> question um, but I think certainly at the start of the 1660s when Charles is coming back that's really what he has what he has to offer is just peace and order and, and no more chaos essentially. Well, regardless of how much Charles delivered on his his policy of peace and order, his brother fails on, on that account. A lot of listeners will know, 1688, the so-called Glorious Revolution occurs. Would you be able to give us an explanation of the Glorious Revolution from the Scottish perspective? Because like so many things in British history, the most well-known version is usually from the, the, the English perspective. But Scotland had a very different experience of these events and i wonder if you could you could give us a a brief rundown of, of what went on yeah that, that word brief is brief. An interesting I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll try my best because um, basically the the well, the first thing to, to grasp here is that when james the seventh becomes king in 1685 um he's catholic and that's a big problem um but in scotland that is offset to some extent by the fact that james had been essentially running scottish government for Charles II since about 1680. He'd been resident in Edinburgh more or less constantly between 1680 and 1682. And even after going back down to London in 1682, he remains the sort of manager of Scottish affairs for Charles II. And that means that by the time Charles beco uh, sorry, James becomes king, um, he's well known in Scotland. He's, he's known as somebody who is familiar with Scottish affairs and is interested in Scottish affairs, which is a bit of a novelty for the Scots, frankly, to have a king who's, who's interested in them. And they haven't had that for <laughs> quite a while. Um, so when he comes in in 1685, the result is he's, he's, he's actually quite popular, it seems, or as popular as a, as a Catholic monarch could be in, in very Protestant Scotland. Which is exemplified by two things. First of all, there's a rebellion against him in 1685 by the Earl of Argyll, um, who had been convicted of treason back in 1681 um, and been living in, in the Dutch Republic for most of the interim. Uh, sails back to try and and uh, and rebel against James in in trying to dovetail his rising with the Duke of Monmouth's rising in, in, in England, which happens at roughly the same time. Um, but that rising failed, Argyll's rising, I mean, fails very quickly and very completely at it poses no real threat to James VII's government. Add to that, around about the same time, James VII calls his first parliament in 1685, um, which is 
almost sickening in its obsequiousness to to the king. It uh, it says lots of wonderful and nice things about him. Says how how, how great he is and how how happy they are to be his subjects, um, and offers him the excise revenue. If you remember, the excise had been granted to Charles II uh, as a lifetime revenue. It's granted to James VII in 1685 forever and ever. So not just for his lifetime, but alienated to the crown forever. And this is this is offered by the Scottish Parliament as token of its its loyalty to James. So James looks in a really good position in Scotland. Um, he's got all these clients, all these supporters. People are generally he's generally quite popular. What, what have you? Um, the problem is that just as in, in England, James is determined to secure toleration for Roman Catholics. Um, he wants Roman Catholics in Scotland to be free of all, all penal laws. And his thinking seems to be that if he does that, if he frees Catholics from, from oppressive laws, um, then all Scots, not all Scots, but a lot of Scots will spontaneously convert to Catholicism because it's so clearly the right religion. Um, so he's looking to remove the restraints on Catholics on the assumption that that will lead to a, a process of re-Catholicization. Um, and so he does lots of things. Um, he, he appoints Catholics to important positions in his government. His, his chief ministers, the, the Earl of um, Perth and the Earl of Meltfort, are both both convert to Catholicism. Um, he, um, he does things like builds a Jesuit chapel in Edinburgh, which is extremely provocative. Um, more, most, more importantly, though, he tries to get toleration for Catholics pushed through the Scottish Parliament in 1686, which doesn't work. There's there's resistance, which you would have thought would have been a, a warning sign, given how how obsequious the 1685 Parliament had been. Suddenly, the next year, it's not doing what the king wants. You would have thought that would have been a sign that he needs to slow down, but apparently not, because what James does is dissolves Parliament in 1686, and in the following year introduces Catholic toleration by proclamation, by royal edict just says, um, you know, all my authority is king, I'm removing all the penal laws against Catholics. And actually also, he removes the penal laws against almost all, all other religious groups, including Presbyterians, um, which seems to be an effort to curry favour, to, um, to get people to accept the toleration of, of Catholics. What it actually seems to do, um, and this is, this is work that's recently been done by Alistair Rafe at, at Edinburgh University really underlines this. What it seems to do is sort of turbocharge Presbyterian dissent, which as I mentioned earlier on, seems to have been withering a little bit um, as we get into the mid-1680s. Suddenly, particularly in the southwest of Scotland, it, 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 it revives um, and we get um, massive exoduses from the Episcopalian Church to the Presbyterian Church um, or to a nascent Presbyterian Church. The problem with that, in terms of the revolution, which we're, we're, we're getting close to now, is that it's, it hollows out James VII's natural support networks, particularly in the Episcopalian Church, which had been the bedrock of royalism under Charles II and for, for the early part of James VII's reign. Suddenly, the Episcopalian Church um, is weakened, is, is hobbled because all of these people are leaving it and because it no longer has special status as the one permissible um, religious uh, grouping in, in Scotland. Um, so you add that in with the fact that that a lot of James's policies, particularly his his promotion of Catholics in, into public office, had annoyed noblemen, um, you, uh, who again would have been natural supporters of the, of the monarchy. Um, James had also been trying to interfere in the government of royal boroughs, which annoys royal boroughs, which again might have been a constituency they would have supported him, but, but won't now. All that means that when we get to 1688, James VII's regime in Scotland is looking 
pretty friendless. I mean, not completely, but it, it's an, he's annoyed a lot of people through the policies he has pursued, which means that when the Glorious Revolution happens in England and the actual, the, the, the crucial events of that revolution, that is William, William of Orange's invasion, James's flight overseas, um, all that kind of stuff is, 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 is very much an English story. Um, but it means that when it happens, that gives these opponents of James an opportunity to seize the initiative and to push through um, a, a, a Scottish version of the revolution. Um, so what we have uh, right at the end of 1688, James, the, James flees overseas in December of 1688. We get this sort of Presbyterian uprising almost um, in the southwest of Scotland, um, which spreads out towards Edinburgh. We end up with Presbyterians um, pretty much taking over Edinburgh at the end of 1688 and into the start of 1689. Um, and that sort of momentum that Presbyterians build up allows them then to capture uh, control of, of the Convention of Estates. Now this is a body, it's, it's a parliament in all but name that William of Orange calls. He's not yet King of Scots, um, not being accepted in that position, but he accepts the kind of management of Scottish affairs given that James has gone away over overseas. And in that capacity calls this Convention of Estates, which is charged with working out um, what, what Scotland's going to do now that James has vanished and William is 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 already King of England and, and as a result King of Ireland as well, although his authority in Ireland is, is yet not yet established. Um, and under the guidance of this of this um, sort of revolution Presbyterian interest, which has captured control of the Convention of the of States, what we get Scotland pushing through is is a fairly radical revolution, a constitutional revolution, much more radical, I, I think it's fair to say, than what goes through in England. Um, and the, the crucial period for this is March and April, and then maybe into May as well, 1689, um, when the convention pushes through the, the bare bones of this revolution, um, which is, is exemplified by an, a document called the Claim of Rights. Sorry, the Claim of Right, singular, not, 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 not plural, um, which declares that James VII, by his uh, mismanagement and his misrule, had forfeited his right to the throne. The word they use is for faulted, which is a little bit more technical and has been interpreted by some historians as, as being a little bit more um, uh, restricted in meaning than the word forfeit. But essentially it comes to the same thing. James has, um, it, it has sort of unmade himself as king because of his misrule, according to the off-drafters of the claim of right, which means that the crown is vacant and can be offered to William and Mary um, to become King and Queen of Scots. Um, so what that all gives us, I think, is a picture of the revolution in Scotland, which um, is in some ways quite reactive in the sense that it, it, it's William's invasion of England and James's flight from England that allows the revolution to take place. But underneath that, we have a distinctly Scottish experience of, um, of James alienating his natural constituencies throughout his reign of, of irritating a lot of people. And then when the moment of revolution comes, we again have this Scottish story of a particular radical grouping, these Presbyterians, um, seizing the initiative and managing to craft a revolution, a revolution settlement, which is quite different from what had happened in England and which results in a um, effectively a, a contractual understanding of monarchy. So that the king has to abide by certain rules. He has responsibilities to his his, his people um, as well as um, right, right, a right to rule over them. Um, 
and at the same time, it resu- the, the, this, the, the constitutional settlement results in a parliament that is massively empowered. The Scottish parliament in its final um, 17, 18 years is on paper a much more powerful institution than it had been under, under James and Charles as a result of this um, sort of distinctively Scottish revolution settlement that's pushed through. See, a lot of what you mentioned there, the idea that this convention established a, a contractual relationship with with the sovereign yeah and i also believe they abolished the episcopacy again uh-huh. just you know yeah. really hammer that home like we don't want bishops stop mm-hmm. it stop giving yeah. us bishops is it possible to see the echo of the earlier scottish revolution in these events are they talking about that are they actively saying this is not what we did we being scots 50 years ago we did that then we could do it again now are they calling on it are they not mentioning it at all because it's within living memory yeah i mean that's a, that's a really interesting question and um, and you're right to pick me up on not having mentioned the the establishment of a presbyterian church because that's that's core to the um, to the uh, to the revolution that that again is is part of the distinctly scottish experience but no it's, it's really interesting because by the time we get to the revolution um in in 1689 um, to 90 in some ways the covenanting revolution is a bit of an embarrassment because i, I mentioned earlier on that the, the experience of Charles's and James's reign, what it tends to do is it hives off the, those radical Presbyterians um, and makes them uh, look sort of uh, dangerous, makes makes them look um, a, a bit a bit zealous. And the, the problem for, for them, I suppose, is that the covenants and the act of covenanting becomes increasingly associated with that fringe grouping. Um, and so what we, what we have, the, the Presbyterians who are pushing through the revolution in 1689 to 90 are not these radical ones these are people who had taken advantage of of james's uh, toleration edicts in 1687 and sort of constructed um, a new presbyterian uh, church almost um but it was not a covenanting church and i think it's very it's very interesting that at no point in the revolution settlement does anybody uh, officially say that we are reenacting the covenants here um that we are uh, sort of repeating the revolution of the late 1630s. Um, I mean, there are good reasons for that, aside from the fact that covenanting had been come associated with these radicals. If, if you were to um, restore the covenants, then you'd be committing yourself to, um, as far as a lot of Scots were concerned, spreading Presbyterianism throughout England and Ireland as well. And that's on nobody's agenda by, by the 1690s. Um, but the Solemn League and Covenant had at least implied that from 1643 to 4. So, um, in terms of, um, of of wider political thinking about contractual monarchy, about um, uh, powers of, of parliament, again, I'm not sure that we see any explicit attempt to to model what's going on in 1689 to 90 on what had happened under the Covenanters. Um, we're certainly seeing people um, picking up uh, general ideas about limited monarchy that had existed before the Covenanting Revolution, that had gone through the Covenanting Revolution and that, that existed in, in Charles II's reign as well. Um, but my sense, and, and others maybe would disagree, but my sense is that that is a more general um, attempt to call back Scottish political philosophy across the early modern period, rather than to zone in on the Covenanting revolution in particular. Um, so I, I think you're right, there's a temptation to assume, well, we'd had a revolution around about 1640, we've got another one in 1690, surely these are connected. Um, I'm not sure that uh, most Scots would have accepted that they were connected in anything except a, a very 
broad sense that they're both revolutions which um, which empower certain parts of of the political system while uh, weakening others i think the other thing to say um just briefly here um is i mentioned the, the notion of contractual monarchy um that is um is challenged at the time that there are people who support the revolution who, who nonetheless don't think that the claim of right establishes a, an ambiguously contractual monarchy. They think it's something much more limited than that. And of course, William, uh, William of Orange himself, or, or William II, as he, as he now is in Scotland, uh, does not accept that his kingship is contractual. He, he, he's quite clear that he's, he'll take the coronation oath that Parliament mandates, but he does not regard this as binding him into a, into a contract. Um, so, um, We've got to be a bit careful about about taking things like the claim of right at face value. It's a bit muddier than that, um, and I think that's worth well, that's worth throwing in there because it underlines the fact that the um, the revolution process um, can look sometimes extremely radical, but there are elements within that process and um, opposing it um, who are a little less clear. Um, but nonetheless, I think throughout all of these groupings, there is no real or certainly no explicit sense that they are completing the work of 1641. I don't think there's any um, any sense of that. And certainly there is no attempt at all to bring back the covenants and to assure that this Presbyterian church that is established um, in 1690 is a covenanted church. There's no um, attempt to do that as well, much to the disappointment, of course, of some of these radical groupings who would have liked to see a covenanted church. Um, but uh, but it's, I think it becomes pretty clear that we're pretty pretty clear pretty quickly that that is not what anybody more broadly outside of these groupings is actually interested in. And that's really interesting. You mentioned that a lot of people are drawing from earlier works of, of Scottish political thought. Do we see them quoting or using people from the earlier revolution? So Johnston of Warriston or Samuel Rutherford or anyone like that? Are they quote? Are they using their work? But linking it to earlier non-covenanter sources as sort of like a this is our this is a scottish political thought political heritage of our relationship with monarchy and with government or is that do they just not mention them at all i'm i'm not aware of them mentioning them prominently um i mean th th there might be other scholars who are more expert who, who who would be able to correct me on that um i think what we see instead is the um, the emergence of this rhetoric, um, which had been bubbling away throughout the early modern period, but I think becomes very um, much more prominent in, in the revolutionary era, um, this um, rhetoric of sort of public opinion, of the inclinations of the people, of, um, of this kind of almost an attempt to claim that um, what the revolution is doing is, um, is sort of giving life to, to natural law or natural justice in, in, in Scotland. Um, you, I mean, that's that's for example, that is the basis on which the Presbyterian the Church is is um, is reestablished, is because it is the natural inclination of the people to want a Presbyterian Church. Um, now, that's very questionable, and people do question <laughs> it at the time. Um, but that's that's the rhetoric. Um, so I think I think we, I think we we more see that than any explicit callbacks um, to uh, to previous thinkers. And I think there, I mean there's quite a good reason for that because if you look at the the most prominent sort of theorists of um, uh, of limited or contractual monarchy, not just in the covenanting period, um, but, but earlier, people like George Buchanan. Um, a lot of their ideas are fairly radical about in, in terms of rights of resistance. Um, so it is one thing in the 1690s to say that there is a contract between the monarch and his people, um, and we're defining people here in narrowed senses as the, 
the political elites. It's not Joe Bloggs down the street who's, who's included in this. It's, it's the elite. But nonetheless, there's a, di- there's a difference between that and saying, well, that means that these people have a right to resist the monarch should he break the contract. Um, and I think there is a reluctance to make that what looks to us, I suppose, like fairly obviously, well, you know, what's the point in a contract if people can enforce it? But nonetheless, that, that is that is a step too far for a lot of people in, in, um, in the 1690s. And I think the problem with a lot of these earlier theorists, and this goes for um, uh, covenanting political thought during the Restoration as well, um, is that 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 step of um, enshrining a right to resistance looks uncomfortably radical for a lot of people, which might explain why it is easier for people um, framing the revolution and justifying the revolution to rely on things like natural inclinations or um, uh, or sort of um, ancient practice or, or whatever than it is to try and invoke specific pieces of, of political philosophy. But again, I will defer to other scholars who, who, have, who have made a uh, a more detailed study of political thought because there are there are others who, who have done that but certainly my sense is that we're not necessarily seeing really um detailed mining of previous political philosophy um to justify the revolution it's a it's a bit more um naturalistic i suppose and a, and a bit more a bit vaguer than that well as we as we bring this lovely chat to a close we'll finish with you know one of the more famous scottish events 1707 <laughs> does the 1630-1640 revolution, the Covenanter Revolution, does this come up now? Or is it much like the case with the Glorious Revolution? It's not mentioned at all by either opponents or supporters. Is it at all relevant to the debates going on in, in the Scottish Parliament? My sense is no, not really. Um, uh, again, there, there, there are others who've made a closer study of the Union debates uh, who, who might disagree. But I think the, the Union debates, when they come, focus on much more immediate issues. I mean, there is a, there is strong Presbyterian interest in, in the union debates, obviously. Um, uh, a lot of Presbyterians are in, in favour of, of union because they see it as a way of, of protecting the church. I mean, there are others who are suspicious. They, they worry that it might undermine the church. Um, but these are not Presbyterians. These are the Presbyterians that I mentioned earlier on who are, um, who are not calling back to, to the, the covenanting revolution. Um, so they they they're not I don't think really talking about uh, about the covenanting period. I mean, similarly for for most other people who are getting involved in the union debates, they they've got other issues that they're much more worried about. They're much more worried about um, uh, uh, commerce. You know, how how do we protect um, or or expand Scottish commerce? Um, how do we um, ensure that we protect the liberties we have won as a result of of the revolution? Um, how do we um, uh, sort of protect uh, privileges that certain groups in society have. So the, you know, the royal boroughs, how, how do you ensure that they don't lose their trading privileges, for example, or, or what trading privileges they still have by this point? And, and also, the, 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 one of the things that really um, underpins a lot of this debate is, is the fallout from the Darien scheme. So um, wh- wh- how, how will that play into, or how does that play into to union? How, what do we need to, um, to get out of union for you know, redress for, for that? All of which is a, is, a, is a long way of saying, I think, that when the union debate comes, it's it's informed by um, the revolution of 1689 to 90. You know, what are the implications of that? How do we protect the gains of that revolution? Um, and how does that play into union? I don't detect much callback to the earlier revolution, apart from among these these hardline covenanters who are who are still there um, uh, in, in the background, kind of um, muddling along. Um, 
and they obviously are still interested in the covenants and the covenanting revolution, but they are very much a fringe by this point. So I think um, it's a tale of two revolutions, really, by the time we get to the Union. The, the Glorious Revolution is really important to the Union debates, directly or indirectly. The Covenanting Revolution, I'm not so sure, is still regarded as, as something that needs to be, um, certainly by mainstream debate, is not really something that I think needs, that, that, that is regarded as requiring to be taken into consideration um, as, as we approach Union. Dr. Alan Kennedy, was there a Scottish Revolution? That is a, an interesting question. I suppose it depends what you mean by, by Scottish. Um, I mean, there is a revolution in uh, b- between 1637 and 1641. There, I don't think there's any doubt about that. There is a massive change in the, the basic fundamental structures of, of the Scottish state. Um, so in that sense, yes, there, there's clearly a, a Scottish revolution. I mean, it's, it, it, it ends up running into the ground, so it doesn't, it, it doesn't, it doesn't last you know, forever. But I think there's definitely a revolution. The problem is, I think, over that Scottish part, because what happens in Scotland in 1637 to 41, and then what happens throughout the 1640s and 1650s is so heavily bound up with what's going on elsewhere in the British Isles. I mean, I don't think I don't think you get the covenanting movement um, without multiple monarchy, without the fact that Charles I is also King of England and, and King of Ireland. Um, and equally, the... Um, you don't get a successful revolution. You don't get the Covenanters um, winning the two bishops wars without the British context, without Charles I finding his resources hobbled by what's by the political crisis in, in England. Um, and also the, the, the subsequent course of the revolution after 1641 makes no sense at all unless you, ex- you understand the British context. Um, so I think the way I would, I would um, frame this is there is a Scottish revolution, clearly, but we have to see it as one component of a much wider series of British revolutions that are also happening, um, which means, unfortunately, understanding this period, I think more so than almost any other period in early modern history, requires you to understand not just Scotland, but what's going on elsewhere. Um, so, yes, to a Scottish revolution, but only within the wider umbrella of British revolutions going on at the same time. What a fantastic answer to end up on. That was that was wonderful. So if listeners are interested in reading or following more of your work, is there anything you'd recommend anywhere they can they can uh, keep up to date? Yes. Um, I mean, the, the, the ob- most obvious way to find me is through my staff web pages at the University of Dundee. Um, so I have, I have a web page there on, on, on the University of Dundee's website um, and that lists my research interests. So I'm, I'm should tells you about um, how I'm interested in late 17th century Scotland themes of, of of politics, crime, migration in particular. Also talks about the Privy Council project, which I'm I'm, I'm involved in too. Um, for you know more light relief, I'm also on Twitter. So if you <laughs> if you want to uh, to get an insight into my uh, my day to day ruminations, you can follow me on on Twitter. I'm not sure I'd recommend it, but it is there. <laughs> um, but certainly, if you go to my university web pages. Um, you'll find um, links to some of my work as well if you're interested in reading up more. The other thing I should say, and, and I always I always feel the need to plug this, is that one of my other hats is that I work with History Scotland magazine. I'm the consultant editor of that. They again have a website um, and they also have the magazine, obviously. Um, and uh, that's a really good place for people to go as a, a general resource on, on Scottish history. Um, the magazine itself is... Um, even if I do say so myself, is, is a wonderful publication which presents um, uh, cutting-edge research in all aspects of Scottish history, heritage and archaeology for, for general 
public consumption. Um, and you'll see my hand um, uh, hovering over a lot of what you find in there. Um, so there's, those are the best ways to find me, either through History Scotland or through my institutional web pages at the University of Dundee. I mean, I would, I would echo that and highly, highly recommend History Scotland. It's brilliant. <laughs> I would also recommend your, your Twitter because it's very, it's very engaging. It's very entertaining. <laughs> and it is, it's, yes, it's a lot of modern politics on it, but you link it back to historical relevance. Mm. And it, I think that's a very valuable perspective. And uh, yeah, I would highly, highly recommend it. And there'll be a link to that, to all of that in the show notes of this episode. Dr. Alan Candy, thank you so much for coming on. This has been wonderful. Thank you for inviting me. I've um, enjoyed it greatly. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. <laughs> My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.